My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like in this podcast to highlight some of the content from the November issue of the journal. The first article I'd like to highlight relates to acute on chronic liver failure, definition, prognosis and management. Acute on chronic liver failure is a recently described entity in chronic liver disease. Helpful to the clinician and defined by acute hepatic decompensation with organ failure and a high short-term risk of mortality. It occurs in 20-30% of hospitalised patients with cirrhosis. In this edition, Amin and colleagues review the definition, management and prognosis. It's important this condition is distinct from acute liver failure and stable progression of cirrhosis. Alcohol consumption, acute or chronic, and infections are the common precipitating factors. Prevention and early treatment of organ failure is key to survival. Outcome of liver transplantation, if available, is generally good. The review is an excellent update with acute on chronic liver failure being a significant challenge, resource heavy, and the subject of a significant amount of ongoing research. The second article I'd like to highlight, Editor's Choice this month, relates to diagnostic ileocolonoscopy, getting the basics right. Colonoscopy is a core skill and requires patience, practice, and a logical approach to problem solving. Sequel intubation and adenoma detection rates are quality benchmarks achieved by technique that optimizes patient comfort while enhancing pathology detection and subsequent therapy. And this commission was inspired by a lecture. Choi and colleagues give a practice-based discussion on getting the basics right as part of the pathway towards achieving this. The article includes comprehensive sections on preparation for endoscopy, scope handling, position changes, abdominal pressure and dealing with loops, with helpful figures illustrating just how many different loops you can create and what we are trying to achieve with position changes and abdominal pressure. It's a great article, it's essential reading for trainees, but it's also a useful update for the experienced endoscopist. I'd now like to talk about two articles, the first of which is Variation in Exposure to Endoscopic Hematostasis for Acute Upper Gastroenterosinal Bleeding During UK Gastroenterology Training. Gastroenterologists are generally expected to be competent in endoscopic hemostasis for acute upper gastrointestinal bleeding, with the Certification of Completion of Training, the CCT, often heralding the onset of participation in an acute on-call gastrointestinal bleeding rotor. In this issue, Sao and colleagues report the volume of experience prior to the award of a CCT recorded on the Joint Advisory Group on Gastrointestinal Training System, JETS, ePortfolio, for a cohort of 232 newly appointed consultants. 
Median number of hemostasis procedures recorded were 42, with an intercortical range of 21 to 71. Experience of exposure to non-varicele modalities, median 28, intercortile range 15 to 52, was more frequent than varicele therapies, which were a medium of 11, intercortile range 5 to 22. By procedure, epinephrine injection, medium 12, and varicele band ligation, medium 10, were most commonly recorded, whereas sclerotherapy experience was rare. In a separate article, Siegel and colleagues have surveyed trainees on their experience, training in endotherapy for acute upper gastrointestinal bleeding, a UK-wide gastroenterology trainee survey. Response rate was 33.5%, so 181 trainees. There was significant variation in training with, for example, senior trainees reporting a lack of experience with independently applying glue, hemospray, heater probe and varicel banding. It's clear from the data in these two papers, and particularly with the advent of shape of training, it will be important to increase the opportunities for training exposure and practice, including through simulation-based training. In addition, endoscopy departments will need to ensure availability of supportive provision in hemostasis, high training, upskilling, supervision, mentorship during the early post-CCT period. There's an excellent linked commentary by Ian Penham, Training in Endoscopic Hemostasis, Targeting the Bleeding Point. The next article I'd like to talk about is relating to the use of infliximab in severe acute ulcerative colitis. Comparison of medium to long-term outcomes of acute severe ulcerative colitis patients receiving accelerated and standard infliximab induction. It's quite a complex paper, but it's very important, the conclusion. Accelerated dose infliximab induction is associated with a reduced short-term colectomy rate in acute severe ulcerative colitis. In this issue, Gibson and colleagues report the medium and long-term outcome. 145 patients, 4 centres, comparing standard, that's 0, 2 and 6 weeks, with accelerated, that's 3 doses by 4 weeks, induction. In the participating centres, accelerated dose induction has been used since 2014. Standard dose induction in this study was classified by time. SD1, that's before 2014, and SD2, that's after 2014. Disease severity or induction was comparable in SD1 and AD groupings, but less in SD2. SD2 being the patients after 2014 who had standard dose induction. This is illustrated in figures in the paper. For example, time to colectomy was prolonged in accelerated dose and SD2 compared with SD1. That's figure two. 
in a Cox regression analysis, factors independently associated with increased risk of colectomy included a high endoscopic score at induction and an increased CRP to albumin ratio at induction. Conversely, use of an accelerated infliximab induction regime was protective with an odds ratio of 0.6, 95% confidence intervals 0.47 to 0.97, P equals 0.038. In summary therefore, and I'd recommend that you work through this paper, since 2014 with the stratified use of infliximab, accelerating dose infliximab induction in the more severe patients, outcome has improved. And this data further supports that strategy in selected patients. There's an excellent accompanying leading article, Infliximab in Acute Severe Colitis, Getting the Dose Right. The final paper I'd like to mention relates to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the non-obese individual. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease occurs in non-obese individuals, so ones with a BMI of less than 25, who can go on to develop non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and progress to end-stage liver disease. The pathophysiology is not fully understood and relates to genetic factors, body composition and insulin resistance. The potential for lifestyle intervention, however, is less clear in the non-obese than in the obese patient. In this issue, Phipps and colleagues review in detail the clinical features, pathophysiology, risk factors, and highlight areas for future research. It's interesting that, for example, when you compare lean patients without non-alcoholic fatty liver disease with those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, they have a higher fasting glucose, increased BMI, increased weight circumference and decreasing circulating adenopectin levels, suggesting that lean and non-lean non-alcoholic fatty liver disease share a common altered metabolic profile. It's essential that the non-obese patients are included in clinical trials to impact an outcome with phase two and phase three trials underway investigating agents that target glucose and lipid metabolism, inflammation and fibrosis. This is an excellent update, clear and focused and great CPD for the generalist and specialist. I hope these articles are of interest. Please enjoy the rest of the issue. Please continue to read, enjoy and feedback on the journal. Please follow us on Twitter listen to our regular podcasts and take part in our Twitter debates. And from time to time, check out the journal website for latest content. My name's Mark Beatty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.